What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest for me, Damon Locks is here. He is from the band, formerly of the band Trenchmouth, currently of Damon Locks Black Monument Ensemble, an incredible musician and someone that can connect so many disparate worlds of this thing that we love here called punk rock, that he is kind of a dream guest for this podcast. More on that in one second. But first, if you'd like get, to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnedoutofpunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire Tristan Abraham, and he can get the message to me. Uh, he didn't book this episode though. Uh, shout out to Fred Armisen, uh, Damon's former bandmate in Trenchmouth, who hooked me up with the contact. So Fred, Fred technically booked this episode, uh, but Tristan will get the message to me. You can also find me directly on Twitter or Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that, you know, that we have this podcast here where we talk to people about music and, and you know, whatnot, you know, what we talk about here. Uh, you can also support the show by heading over to turned at a punk, uh, com and grabbing a t-shirt for this here show. They are, uh, they're not fast print shirts. There's, they're multiple colors are screened and, and shout out to Corey for helping me set this thing up. I designed them myself. Actually one of them, my dad designed, but the rest I designed myself. Uh, you can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes. And thank you to everyone that has done that. It really is appreciated. Uh, and uh, in terms of, the, oh, you can also head over to patreon.com. How can I forget this? 
Patreon.com and checking up uh, some of the stuff that's up there. Footnotes, episodes for the show with Chris O'Toole and myself. And there's also lost episodes and video versions of the podcast and all sorts of stuff. So huge, huge, huge thank you to everyone that supports that thing. Because without you, this would, would not be possible. Uh, so thank you. And, oh, I play in a band called Fucked Up. Uh, fuckedup.cc is where you can find out about records we've got coming out and tours we got coming. We're going to be going to America. We're going to be playing some shows on the West Coast in a couple weeks. So head over to fuckedup.cc and find out some dates about that thing. You can also find out about reissues of Epics Comes to Minutes on Get Better Records. There's also a reissue of David Comes to Life on Matador. And then there's also Year of the Horse on Tank Crimes Records. And I think we've got we've got some other stuff coming. Uh, you can find out, once again, more information at our website. All right, that is that. On to today's show. Today on the show, Damon Locks is here. Now, Trenchmouth, I think, is one of those bands that just is criminally underrated. Like, they are a band that put out so many spectacular records, really had a completely unique approach to this thing that I think eventually music kind of caught up to where they were, but, uh, yeah, just, uh, such a great band that I, I, you know, love videos of, uh, Fred's been on the show before from the band and I've always wanted to sit down and talk to Damon because, you know, he's, he's kind of, uh, that guy. And then the other day I just, uh, you know, hit up Fred and was like, can you get me in touch with him? And sure enough, Damon agreed to come on the show and it, it's a dream where this goes. Like I knew, it starts in DC, so we're going to be able to connect DC to Chicago, and then we're connecting uh, El Paso to. It, it, this is a this is a fun one. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore, though. I will implore you check out Black Monument on Damon Locke's Black Monument Ensemble's new album now, and and I mean it's called now, but you definitely should check it out now. Well, after you listen to the podcast, but it is a fantastic record. Um, and, and someone's got to reissue all these trench month records because they are also unbelievable and, and kind of hard to track down some of them. Like the, the one on East West is, is a very expensive record. If you want to try and get that on Bono. Anyway, we don't need to talk about Discogs right now. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Damon Locks on Turned Out a Punk. Damon, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Well, as I was just kind of telling you off air, I'm a huge fan, and I think Trenchmouth is so fascinating, and specifically you and Trenchmouth is are incredibly fascinating because you link two of the most incredible sort of vibrant DIY scenes of of American punk and, and hardcore and, and music in general, which is the DC scene and the Chicago scene, mm-hmm. and and also Skeen Records, which is also a personal soft spot of mine, too. So I got a lot of stuff to talk to you about tonight. Thank you for doing that. Shout out to Jeff Spiegel. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> before we get to Jeff, let's start it off where it all starts off. How did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, you know, I I was going to this art program called Art Center. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always a good artist. And I started taking art classes at Art Center, I think maybe in sixth grade. And uh, so I would do these summer classes. And then the, the guy that ran the program, Orun Barnes, was like, you should come during the school year. And normally you're not supposed to, like a junior high school student in eighth grade wasn't normally in this program, it was for high school students. But he was like, you should get in. 
So we contacted my parents, contacted, made like, made or arranged, we arranged it through my junior high school. So in eighth grade, I started spending half of my day in a high school in this art program. And so the people I befriended in this art program, one, Peter Kortner, who then became Pete Moss from Dag Nasty and uh, Joe Lally. So as eighth grader, I was friends with senior Joe Lally and uh, I think, yeah, senior uh, Pete Kortner. Pete and so then I met a couple other older guys and they started making tapes for me. And so I was like a young black kid that didn't have any exposure to punk music. Um, I was listening to Cool in the Gang, you know, <laughs> um, um, and uh, disco when I was younger. But also I listened to everything, whether it was like uh, the Carpenters to Earth, Wind and Fire to the Spinners, you know, but I had nothing, I had no experience with punk, but um, they started making me tapes and I would look at the titles and I'd be like, The Jam, that's a good name, The Jam, yeah. And then I'm like, The Clash. And so some stuff really made sense to me immediately. Um, I really liked, I think one of the early tapes that Peter made for me had like Radio Clash on it and I loved it. And Bow Wow Wow and Joy Division, all that stuff kind of, soon as I heard it, I liked it. But he had made me this tape, this hardcore tape, and I didn't get it, couldn't, I couldn't get there, you know? And one, soon after that, I was introduced, maybe the, the following year, I was introduced to some older guys that had a band called Body Count. The way precursed, you know, precursed uh, Ice T's Body Count. Mm -hmm. But this band Body Count, Peter used to be the second singer in Body Count and he went away to college. So I met Hal and Mark Macho and all the guys from Body Count and they played my high school at a thing called the coffee shop. Uh, uh, and not the coffee shop, it was called, it was called Coffee Something. And um, they played and I got it. Like I understood it. Um, I think maybe, I, I mean, I had some of their songs on tape and so when I saw it live, I'm like, this is it, you know? And they were, Hal was super into sing-alongs. So I got up on the mic with a group of, like a small group of punk rockers that were there. And after that, I put that hardcore tape on and I, I instantly understood Minor Threat and Iron Cross and all the stuff from Flex Your Head. I just got it. And so after that, my friends Derek and Greg and I just went to every show that was possible. You know, my first show was a Minor Threat show. Um, Minor Threat, Government Issue, Eric's new band, EMB, which became Dove after that, and this band called Social Suicide. That was February of 1983. And so once I saw the show, like this was at Wilson Center, which was, was my favorite venue of the back, back in the day, we were just observing, you know? And I'm not sure, but I think, I don't know the date, but I think there's a, 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 a picture in, in, of me in that, in my eyes book at my first show, I think. <laughs> That's awesome. I was like, I think that was my first show. I'm gonna talk to Jim and find out um, if he knows the date. But I was walking away, we had to go home because I, we were like 14 years old, you know? 
Um, and Meyer Threat just came on and I had ordered the first two seven inches. And one of the songs, I think it was like Small Man, Big Mouth came on and I was like, I'm going into the pit. And so I went and I danced. And I tell you, we saw that first year of 1983, we saw every show that we possibly could have. We just got the fever. We, we got it and it was amazing. So that was my introduction. It's amazing when you talk about those first series of tapes that you got, because that's the thing that always strikes me about talking to people from that early DC scene that you're a part of, is that there is just such a musical awareness. Like, obviously, the music that comes out of that sort of first batch of Discord stuff is is very, like, hardcore. But just it seems like all those people, their tastes were just all over the map when people come on yeah. the show from those bands. You know, just like like you're saying, like, Bow Wow Wow was on equal footing as, you know, the Vile Tones and we're on equal footing as the Circle Jerks. Like, it's just like a, a, a giant melange of music at that point. Yeah. It was just this world of stuff I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. So I kind of took it all the same level, you know, whether, uh, as you know, like a lot of the British stuff was like chart hitting stuff. But to us, it was all in the import section. <laughs> so that that's where I went to go buy records, the import section. So you would find the Dead Kennedys or you'd find um, uh, Teardrop Explode or Echo and the Bunny Man. All that stuff was all in the same section. So it was cool with me. I'll buy the Stranglers and I'll buy the Circle Jerks, you know, mm -hmm. Channel 3. Yeah. So what, and were you buying records at Yesterday and Today? No, well, I did go Yesterday and Today, but that wasn't my go-to. There was a record store, phenomenal record store, called Joe's Record Paradise in, in Maryland that there was a, a, like an amazing like handful of older guys that were just super helpful. You go and you'd be like, I don't know what Strangler's album to buy. And you say, I like this song. And they'd be like, well, if you like this song, you'll probably like this record, you know? So I got handed to those guys. You know, I'd go in being like, I heard a band on the radio called Naked Ray Gun. And they're like, we have the first seven inch. And I'd be like, I'll take it, you know? So Joe's Record Paradise was my spot, you know? Yeah. I think that actually the Void guys mentioned that store when they were on the show. Yeah, incredible. And I'm, I can't wait to listen to your, your, your Bubba Dupree interview. <sighs> So excited. That, that's that's my Jimmy Page. You know, I think anyone who's like a hardcore fan, like that's that's our guitar god in, in hardcore music. I, I gotta say, you know, you know, I got your email and then I messaged Fred, and Fred's like, good guy, awesome. <laughs> and then I went online and looked at the podcast and I'm scrolling through, and I'm like, Oh, this is impressive. But then I saw Bubba and I was like, I'm in. I'm just gonna say yes, I don't need to go any further. <laughs> that's awesome. No, I like and I, and I really feel his like record that he did later on, he did like sort of this like 90s alternative record that's incredible. Like it's sort of this unheralded great glam record that, you know, obviously Void is so important that it, it makes sense that it overshadows things. But I think that record is like truly an undiscovered 90s classic. Well, yeah, I haven't heard that. And, and Bubba in my life is a little bit of uh, is a, an enigma and mystery mm -hmm. because I only knew him from that time period. He, he may not know. I was just a 14, 15-year-old kid seeing these shows, right? But Void, like, when I was trying to understand things, I came in and understood Minor Threat, right? And mm -hmm. then when Void entered the scene, it was the Faith Void record for me. And Faith I got because it reminded me of Minor Threat. 
And then Boyd was insanity. And so when I saw Boyd, like they were mostly dressed like regular guys, like the singer wore a t-shirt and like soccer shorts. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, maybe the guitar, the bass player would have like camouflage pants and a sleeveless shirt. And then Bubba had this pompadour and the drummer also looked like a, a guy in like, I'm, I'm, I'm playing basketball like that. You know, he might have a headband on or something, you know? <laughs> and when they started playing, insanity erupted. And so there was no, I had no context for what was happening. I was like, this doesn't look like punk. This is just, I don't even know what the, it sounds like the music's being played backwards. I don't know what's happening. So that like boy just sparked my imagination. And the fact that Bubba was a person of color, I was like, well, how did this happen? Who is this guy? You know? So I never really, like, I didn't know many people that knew him, you know, like, so he, Bubba still remained a, a mystery and, and uh, an enigma to me. Well, it's funny. Cause like, you know, last few years or maybe like 10 years ago, there was this like subsect in hardcore called mysterious guy, hardcore. And mm -hmm. the, the tenets of the genre was the fact that these, these bands played this sort of wild music, but you never really knew who these people were that was making this music. And it's, it's amazing how void is kind of the ultimate original mysterious guy, hardcore band, because like you're saying, like, you know, I'm, I'm once again, I'm years later looking at this stuff, trying to study it. And they were a band that you just kind of had to piece together that none of it really made sense. There's like an unreleased LP that people are like, oh, it's terrible. Then you hear it. You're like, oh, it's kind of cool. Like what happened with this band? So, yeah, they're the they were the ultimate enigma for me, as, even as a record collector in Toronto. Yeah, that that second album that never came out. I think the song Spiral Staircase is really a jam. Um, but we had tape of that album for years and back in the day when people dubbed tapes they would speed up like so the tape that we ended up with was like even though their songs were slower it was still sped up so the vocals <laughs> sounded crazier than yeah. they did you know the vocals are already pitched up and then they sounded crazier and so when i actually heard the record like kind of normal i was like oh this is not <laughs> Like, like, cause we were listening to this like bizarro version of it, you know, yeah. which was perfect for boy, you know, like I wish they could release the sped up dub tape. You know? <laughs> There's actually a really good version of it on YouTube. Now, like someone's gone together and taken all these sort of dub tapes and mastered together a pretty decent sounding version of it. And like, like you're saying, it's slower, it's, it's a little weirder, but you could see if they had more time and they got to finish it, it would have been like a real landmark record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some important. I, I, I have said many times, if a, if someone could do a cover of all the songs, they'd have an incredible record, and I'd buy it. If someone's like, "This is so and so doing the Void out second album," I'd be like, "Here's my money. Let's listen to it." I'm saying, I think we know what Countdown to Chaos has to do for the reunion record. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> so you're, you're you're revealing your deep cuts there. Oh, no, believe me, I got a lot. I got a lot to get to. <laughs> but uh, So where did you kind of go, you know, like from this Minor Threat show, like you mentioned getting into records, like did you try and start a band earlier before Trenchmouth? Yeah, yeah. I had a band called uh, Potential Disturbance in ninth grade um, with my then friend Derek Bish. And we were getting into music at the same time, me, Derek, and Greg. But Derek and I decided we wanted to form a band and we had no skills whatsoever to do so. Like we were, we were, we drew, 
but we didn't know how to be in a band. So there was a band in my high school of three guys, uh, and they had a band called Faithful Treason. And they were a three-piece, and their guitar player sang, and they were clearly new wave, right? And just fully new wave. Um, but they could really play, and they had manager. And so most of these guys are like in ninth grade, and they have a manager who was just another guy in the school. So we made a meeting with that manager and the guitar player, and we said, our band wants to join your band, and we want to merge. And so we worked out a merger. And so <laughs> we did another one of the coffee, the coffee, what the, what the hell is it called? But one, one of the coffee house. And so we were introduced. Faithful Treason did two songs. And then Derek and I came up and we did Stepping Stone and If the Kids United by Sam 69. And that was the introduction to Potential Disturbance. So Potential Disturbance lasted for maybe a year, maybe two years, uh, maybe probably about a year. And then I formed the band Pro Tem with Peter Kortner who then became Pete Moss, um, Mark Shellhouse, who was the second, who was the drummer for, who later became the drummer on Need a Job, the Beef Feeder. No, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he was the drummer on that. And Yanni Papadopoulos from um, Stinking Lizavetta. So in high school, I was in a band with that group of people called Pro Tem. And then I, and then I moved away to college. What was the vibe of Pro Tem? Pro Tem was super weird. Like we were definitely on that weird side of things, you know, like um, there was like, I, I think I, I was fairly kind of straight ahead, you know, like, in, in, like I liked the ruts, you know, and I liked government issue and I like, you know, and Mark Shellhouse liked uh, Peach of Immortality and a bunch of other like super out stuff, you know, um, Yanni, um was young and clean cut um at the time but had an incredible like guitar you know uh abilities so he was playing uh which would later become like very metal medley but he was always like very like all the way up and down the fretboard and then so we were writing these really bizarre songs where i was like writing about you know uh the death of speed racer from trixie's point of view with these songs that sounded like like they were like revolving and falling apart and slightly metal you know yeah so did yeah. you guys play shows at? we played a couple shows yeah we played with the earliest version of dag nasty with sean brown and yeah we played with i think mission impossible and i think uh we played with uh a band called Dame Bramage, which was uh, uh, Dave Grove Grove band. Yeah. So Fart Blossom Records had a crazy underrated album. There you go. Um, So we played a handful of shows. Yeah. Before I moved away to college. So it's a real transitional scene in DC at that time from what I've read and like what I've kind of heard, right? Like it's the like revolution summer kind of happens and there's that, that shift kind of where the shows were getting super violent and, and a new scene kind of sprung, sprung up. Is that something you kind of witness going to shows? Like you're super young at this point, but is that something you're perceiving in the air? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like there was that initial era. I caught the, 
I caught the tail end of the original era, right? Mm-hmm. So I got to see Meyer Threat, Boyd, and Bad Brains, and like, you know, all this like classic, amazing stuff, Scream and their first album and their second album and all these amazing things. And then there was a, a period where the only two bands from that, from that kind of scene that were around were Government Issue and Marginal Man. So we were just seeing Government Issue and Marginal Man shows all the time. And everyone had broken up and there was like a whole skinhead thing that, that was hitting all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was kind of not amazing until around Revolution Summer came back. And then you got right, saw the first Rights of Spring and Embrace shows and Soul Side shows up. Scream had been around the whole time. So Scream were like stalwarts of the of the space. But bands like Beef Eater, it was just like, it was super interesting. And there was like new challenges, you know? Um, but there was like, what I would, I would call like the reconstruction era. Yeah. Of like, let's put a punk scene together and see what we can do because it's it hit it was hitting the mainstream so a lot of the ideas that were in the in the underground were being kind of proliferated so mtv had videos of people slam dancing and stage diving and so shows were looking like a mess because a bunch of more people were showing up just acting out their things so dc i I was still there at the time or, or i was there a lot DC was on this in this reconstruction time and around 1986 is when I moved to New York to go to school. It's amazing how that revolution summer kind of scene that becomes like the the punk scene that's almost you know proliferates all over North America and, and all over the world at that point like a very political aware involved scene you know like it feels like that thing spread you know, just like you're talking about how that skinhead thing was spreading all over America, like this sort of like counter scene almost begins to spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was very interesting. It was super interesting to watch that reconstruction and see what was happening. Um, you had like kind of outliers, like I feel like Beefeater was part of that and and wholly original at the same mm-hmm. time. Dag Nasty started at the same time and Dag Nasty had very like, I feel like self-consciously catchy you know, um, kind of almost pop element to it. Um, and then um, then you also had like Embrace and Rights of Spring and then uh, Embrace, Embrace's demise and then the, the birth of Fugazi within a, in like two years or something. Did you ever see that? I'm blanking on the name now. There's that pre-Rights of Spring band. Like Geese had that band before that. Insurrection maybe or something? I did see Insurrection, yes. What were um, they, they like? I, th- I saw Insurrection over at 930 Club, and I remember thinking that Insurrection was the loudest band I'd ever seen until I saw SSD Control. <laughs> like, I was just like, I don't even know if it was the same show or not, but I was just like, Insurrection, I was like, this is so insanely loud, it's intense, you know? And then uh, it was blown away by SSD Control before their How We Rock period. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the other thing is there's so many great bands. Like you're you're at such an amazing period of hardcore when you're getting into it, where you know, like all these bands are traveling now and probably coming through. Like, who are some of your favorite bands, like other than SSD, that were kind of coming through from some of the other scenes? Well, I'm not sure I would call SSD one of my favorite bands. Your favorite other bands you found interesting, maybe. Yeah, 
Um, I mean, you know, you're going to burn, you'll learn, you'll learn. Don't you dare to steal my air is an amazing SSD line. So that, <laughs> that was the award. But um, uh, I got to say, you know, learning about uh, Husker Du and seeing Husker Du on Zen Arcade, um, Jody Foster's Army. Um, I, I liked, I saw Mick Rad once um, from Philly and yes. their, their singer had just quit. So they had this guy who was filling in and he had the lyrics in his hand and it was really super interesting. It was nothing like the McGrad EP, you know, but I was like, <laughs> this is interesting because they were doing a thing that was like close to my heart. You know, like I really liked the clash and the ruts and body count did a lot of this kind of like ska, the ska hardcore hybridization. I love the bad brains with the hardcore and reggae scenario because it was including like blackness in the mix like mm -hmm. so i was super excited about that so mcrad clicked as well so um yeah those are some of the bands that came through that i mean come on zen arcade like seeing who's could do on zen arcade was really phenomenal you know um jelly Foster's army was just bizarre you know like uh yeah uh yeah because well, you also mentioned uh earlier naked ray gun and they're another band who i think incredible so good so good oh i saw them i think it was previous I, i'm pretty sure i saw them previous to all rise oh that's uh, awesome yeah and so i remember singing like going to the show being right uh, right up front and being so young that songs like libido and no sex <laughs> like i was just like what's what's wrong with sex is sex bad like <laughs> I just did, I had no no what what they were talking about, but I was like, no sex, no sex, no sex, no sex, no sex, no sex. Um, and then um, uh, Jeff Bazzotti after the show, he was like, you knew all the words. And I was like, yes. So, is what made you decide to go to Chicago of of all places? Was it that scene at all, or is it just the school? Or um, actually, it it was a woman. Um, and so she was going to the art institute and I, I, I love naked Raygun and I, I, I would say I have strong fondness for the effigies mm -hmm. and big black were incredible when I saw them live. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'll move to Chicago. Let's, let's do this, you know? And so as, as you know, I've been playing with Fred. Um, in a band that was first called Fred and then became Shovel. Um, and then um, I said, Fred, you know, I think I'm moving to Chicago because I'd left to come visit Chicago and visit her, uh, Sue Ann. And um, I got accepted at the Art Institute. So I said, Fred, I think I'm, I'm leaving. And Fred's like, I'll, I'll go. And then um, Wayne, who was in the earlier incarnation of the group, uh, but wasn't in the later incarnation. Fred was like, I'm going to ask Wayne. And so Wayne and Fred decided to pack up like a month after I moved to Chicago and moved to Chicago. And I moved in with the guitar player who became the first guitar player for Trenchmouth. And he knew a guitar player that had practice space. So he joined, that guy was in the band. So um, as soon as Fred and Wayne moved, we formed a band immediately. So did you guys play many shows in DC in, the, in, in Shovel or Fred? Um, Shovel played, I think, one show, maybe two. We played with 
government issue for sure. And we played with, um, with, uh, a band that had Tim Green in it, um, Vile Cherubs. Oh, okay. I think I've heard nine that. Yeah. So that was the one show that I really remember. We might have played another. It, it's, uh, it's funny because government issue keeps coming up. They're really the band that you can kind of tell the story of DC's music sort of journey through one band with. Because I guess they're well, the one who sticks around. They're the one that stayed, stayed all the way through. Yeah. And uh, I, some of those early government issue shows like that I saw, you know, pre-Joyride and Joy, like Joyride, um, Make an Effort EP where Brian Baker's written and playing on some of the stuff. So phenomenal. So good. You know, yeah. Mark Alberstadt, who was the drummer, was just a sight to behold. Like he was just so frenetic and and so good. I I I remember that. I remember seeing those early government issue shows like vividly. Because they they kind of, if you go over and flex your head, they seemed a little bit like a jokey band. Mm. And then by um, by Joyride, they were that album is fully not a joke jokey band. No, but but you know what? Even then, it always has like a self awareness to it. Like in yeah. uh, you know, like it's it, it it's it's earnest, but it, like it does have this sort of like, you know. And, and I'm judging from a distance, obviously, and just through photos and live videos. But it really does feel like there was a a postmodern kind of like approach to things or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that John, uh, John Stab was always sarcastic, mm. and I also think that he never bought into like the machismo of punk like so he pushed back it like he like dressed ridiculous and he was never going to be like i'm a cool guy you know yeah so he held on to that so um that was that was like an amazing like still a confrontation you know but a confrontation with within the punk scene he was never going to be a cool guy it's also interesting when you look at dc and like the early wave of dc where they're going around to these different scenes, they're almost like setting the bar for what a hardcore scene's supposed to be in terms of the machismo stuff, in terms of the moshing and all that sort of thing. And then ultimately there's sort of like this growing up that happens. And then they almost are the people exporting these, this scene where it's like, no, reject that stuff. Like, like, you know, we need to approach it differently. Well, that's true. Um, but I think a lot of that was like out of their hands, really. Mm. That's how the world reacted to it. In DC, also at the time of the Revolution Summer, there were bands like Grand Mall and 9353. Grand Mall later, some of them became Holy Rollers, but Grand Mall was incredible, you know? Um, so my, my crew of people like kind of went across the board, like to, Grand Mall had like more of a Joy Division, early, um, early Dream Syndicate, like first album Dream Syndicate, and like a bad dream. Like that was kind of what Grand Mall was. So we would, we saw tons of 9353 shows and Grand Mall shows. Scream seemed to be like, a band that lived on its own terms and wasn't necessarily like in the discord pocket, you know? Mm -hmm. So we, we had a lot of things that we could pick and choose from. And uh, I, I, I always enjoyed the discord stuff. And that was always like kind of the front runner of the stuff. 
but I also, I didn't go to the shows, but I was also listening to a lot of Go-Go at the time as yeah. well. Yeah. And I, you know, like so many other people, I was also fully like embracing uh, hip hop at the time, rap music as it was then called. <laughs> so my kind of, my viewpoint was, you know, hardcore was also, you know, part of this thing that brought me 9353 and Grand Mall. But also then I had this appreciation for this whole like idea of the underground community, which brought me like mixtapes of go-go, you know? Um, yeah. I, and then rap was this other like mysterious, wonderful, amazing underground world that was happening at the same time. So all of this were like these, to my brain, were these like tendrils of like art, music, expression. It's it's interesting, 9353, the descriptor used, uh, you know, for the other band, the Prioli Roller Band as being a bad dream, like that applies to 9353's records too. Like they really do have that kind of like sinister kind of feel to them. Yeah, like 9353 was the closest thing to a musical version of Eraserhead. From <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. And yeah. so around that same time, I saw the midnight showing of Eraserhead. And then when I saw 9353, I was just like, I don't know what this is. I, I think I love it, you know? And that was how I, early David Lynch, that's the same thing I said. I was just like, I don't know what this is. And I think I love it. I, I love that. Oh, sorry, go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was also going to say that, there, you know, at, at the same time, we were also like absorbing Birthday Party and the Butthole Surfers and things like that, where I was just like all these things. Because as I said, a year earlier, I was buying Cool the Gang records. And then all of a sudden, this whole world is like open to me. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening. And like no other Black people I knew were listening to this. You know, mm -hmm. and I was just like, I'm just doing this. But luckily in the dc scene there was uh there were you know obviously the punk scene is a predominantly white scene but throughout the history of the dc scene there were like black people around so if i was going into shows at the wilson center there's going to be a couple other black punk rockers there's probably someone that's going to be on stage that is, is black and there's also someone that like snuck in through the door because we were the shows were in black neighborhoods you know mm -hmm. It's, you know, and also these other bands that we're talking about, like 9353, like there's, you know, like there's obviously this sort of like accepted sort of history of DC that's very Discord dominated, but there's also all this other stuff like, you know, within the punk world specifically even that's happening, like where you have like uh, Pussy Galore's from yep. DC and, and Jennifer from Royal Trucks is from DC. Like there's a, a lot of sort of like, you know, the like birthday party kind of influenced or, or sort of more that leaning stuff that's happening at the same time. Yeah. And then um, also then there was, I mean, there was this group Peach for Immortality that shows up in right, around 95, maybe 94, 95. Um, they were very, they were very out there. Um, and then there's also in that same time period where uh, DRI and Corrosion and Conformity become metal bands. Yeah. That there's a band like Malefice shows up in DC. And then you start getting like, metal like weird hybrid stuff that's definitely not discord you know mm -hmm. um so all that stuff was incredible man my malefice seven inch i love that seven inch do you well, know yeah, absolutely because it's on dsi records which is i think gets overshadowed by discord but there's just so like united mutation malefice yeah. there's just so many great bands 
on that label. Like it's really, and like you're saying, there's just like weirder bands, like a lot of bands that are doing this thing, but like from a, you know, like not that void is worse or in any sort of way, but like United mutations taking what voids doing and, and making even more kind of like out there with their approach yeah. to it. Yeah. I, I, I repped, I repped hard for the outsiders myself, you know, yeah. like uh, I had like one foot in the outsiders thing and then one foot in the like discord scenario you know well and it, i guess that also you know kind of pre-fortells trenchmouth too where you guys never really seem to fit into a scene like i think music eventually catches up to you guys like at the drive-in and all these bands becoming popular later on but like you guys are not approaching this thing from the same way that like when you're in chicago screeching weasels approaching it or or mm-hmm. or like uh you know any other number band is from chicago like it's such a vibrant scene at that point but like Trenchmouth feels like a band that fits in, but at the same time, just just doesn't fit in by the fact that you guys are doing things so differently musically. Yeah, I think some of that um, comes from like what we were making, and some of it comes from like we were not from Chicago for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, we you know when we buy our second seven inch when uh, Chris is the guitar player, um, and and it's it was Chris, Wayne, Fred, and I for the rest of the time. Um, uh, Chris was the only guy from Chicago and the rest of us were from the East coast and Chicago for its diversity did have a thing, you know, like tar and peg boy. And there's kind of like a, 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 a Chicago police jacket type of black top type of energy, you know, <laughs> I know exactly. what you mean. <laughs> yeah. And we, when we showed up, I had dreadlocks and we were dyeing our hair. Um, we were like jumping around, playing like sometimes funky music, lots of percussion, like super percussive stuff, you know? Like our first album is at the end of our like, like much more like, I'm gonna have to say like, you know, we were making strange music that pulled from Gang of Four, Bow Wow Wow, and The Clash from our perspectives of being like being close to like hardcore scenes, but then also had a dose of, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers like enjoyment or fishbone enjoyment. And we were like, unabashedly like cool with that, right? But so the first album, you can hear a little bit of that, which is decidedly not Chicago by any stretch of the imagination. And then by, I think by, um trench mouth versus the light of the sun we had like kind of honed down the cold we like kind of left the music on boil on the stove and then and and then made the like the concentrate which then became trench mouth you know um so we came from a a a very rhythmic and percussive space which was not what steve albini was doing and was not what you know uh tar was doing you know yeah no it would have would have fitted much more with what was happening in dc i guess at that time and I, which is why you do the splits with circus lupus and stuff yes and in a weird way my super dear friend jay robbins who i grew up with jawbox might have fit better in chicago yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know because if you look at that jawbox and and tar is it tar um split seven inch yeah yeah where they each do one of their songs perfect fit yeah that's true. It's amazing yeah. how like you can be 
you know, not only out of step with time, but just out of step with your, with your scene, just because like everyone around you is doing one thing. And if you're going the other way, it, it's just going to be much more like an up, upstream kind of fight. It definitely was. And we kind of formed our own kind of like Wicker Park Zarbar scene. And okay. once we, once the Zarbar opened up and we were able, along with like Elliot Dix, who was the um, sound guy, he had like a PA system and we used to like do shows out of this Polish bar that was mostly like old Polish guys, but they, we were allowed to do shows there. So there were the old Polish guys that had no interest in the show whatsoever on one side. And then on the other side of the room, we were having like a Circus Lupus, uh, Nation of Ulysses and Trenchmouth show, you know? So once we were able to like book our own gigs and coming people coming through, you could have Slant Six and, and uh, Unwound come and play the Czar Bar, you know? Yeah. And so then that's the point where we were kind of like in step with what was happening because we were bringing in like those touring bands that weren't kind of in line with what Chicago, like what I thought the Chicago trajectory was. Does it's, that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense. Absolutely. And I guess that's also because at that point you just build your own scene. Like you were talking about reconstruction in DC. Like you're kind of just doing the same thing in Chicago where you're you're like, okay, we'll just build our own thing. Yeah. Yeah. It it also feels like Chicago, I guess because it's such a huge city and so spread out, there's so many places to play. Like there's so many almost like micro scenes happening at the same time, which seem very much like not necessarily connected. I guess everyone's connected by that underdog records comp, Uktung Chicago. I think right. Spy maybe, but uh, yeah. where where all these different bands are on it, but it seems like you would all be playing sort of separate shows, and occasionally things would overlap a little bit. Yeah, I mean there was there are different scenes like the suburban scene that um, Captain Jazz came out of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I remember um, playing with them and Gage, right? And yeah. um, I remember Tim Kinsella was going was about to move into the city and he was like i don't know 18 or something like that you know yeah. and so i was like hey tim let's go to a show you know we went to lounge acts at the time i introduced him to a bunch of people he was like a shy kid and i was like this is you know azita from the scissor girls and this is so and so you know i was like these are people that you're gonna know now that you're living in the city so they had definitely had a different like suburban scene right mm -hmm. and we would go out there and play shows and we felt a kinship because we still had we had that aesthetic like this is for the kids you know we're playing as many all ages shows as possible and that's what also made us different from chicago traditionally when we hit the road i mean hit the ground we were looking for all ages shows and in chicago people like we didn't like all ages shows like older people wanted to drink that <laughs> was chicago Chicagoans want to drink. So we were like, why don't you want to play with kids? You know, like we want to play with kids. So we did that, you know. Um, and then there was Los Crudos on the South Side, who we didn't really interact with that much, but we had this like, like, I think that we had this like mutual respect, even though we had two different scenes happening. Like Martin from Los Crudos, he and I get along great and we have this like fondness. For each other even though i think we might have only i think if we did we played with them once you know mm. but um, we have really interesting conversation about like what they were doing and the differences between how my experience uh as a person of color in the punk hardcore scene 
and and what they were and what their experience was super interesting so much respect to los crudos and and you know and the whole like the bow weevils and all those bands that were you know doing things simultaneously so it was a big enough city and a small enough city that you ran into people but you you know they had different things happening you know um there were all kinds of groups uh smoking popes and i'm trying to remember this other band that was that was like on the verge of getting super popular i think they were a trio and they were around during that kind of um you know the minneapolis heyday time yeah. period i'm trying to think but who that been the digits do you remember the oh digits? yeah absolutely yeah they, and, and then they had a huge hit because uh offspring covers them on smash right so you had the digits and you had urge overkill yeah you know yeah. like and you had smashing pumpkins were happening <laughs> and then soon liz fair was happening and jesus lizard was happening this was all in chicago you know tortoise yeah. happened you know so you know freak water was happening like closer children this, like yeah closer, like so you know this was like a kind of a free-for-all you know and so since i was from from dc i had a i had a connection to the dc scene that brought us a tribe and a family circus lupus had moved like um chris had moved to madison to go to college and formed circus lupus there mm. and so since we were close to each other we played together and then eventually Chris, I think, gave up on Madison and moved back to DC and several of the members moved and he can, he continued to circus lupus. But I, I knew I grew up with Ian Spinonius and uh, Steve Gamboa. And so when nation of Elysi started, I knew Ian from back in the, back in the day from when I was a little kid. So um, we were able to like find, that commonality and play with those bands and and those bands really helped us like i think that chicago we felt more at home in minneapolis than we did in chicago and our discord like family or or kinship i would say like cousins mm. were the thing that helped us like so many people came to see us because nation of ulysses had our name on their record or circus lupus had our name on the record or jawbox had our name on the record you know yeah and i think like that that sonic connection also is stronger. So if you're a fan of one of these bands, Trenchmouth is going to be that much more accessible to you because these bands are kind of approaching it from sort of the same open perspective to this music. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when Martin was on the show, he actually talked about how Chicago was going through like a lot of growing pains towards the late eighties too. When did you move there for the first time? I moved there in the late eighties. So yeah, that would have uh, been kind of the same got, time. Yeah. I got there at 88. And at the end of 88, and there was still a big skinhead thing happening here. Mm. Most of the original bands had yet to reform. They were basically like everyone was naked, Reagan was dormant and uh, Big Black had officially broken up. And um, I think Rape Man didn't exist yet. They, they, they formed that year for a short amount of time. Effigies were just missing in action. You know, yeah. didn't, I didn't think they were together. And so when we arrived, there was no real cohesive scene. So Trenchmouth started playing, we started playing Dreamers and the Avalon, and we were just playing with like random bands, you know, like I, I apologize to those bands. They, they were bands that weren't random to them, but you know, there were bands that were like called maybe definitely, you know, or 
tick tock, you know, deep blue dream. And none of them had, there was no cohesive scene. I was just like, okay, we're on this bill with these random bands. And so if there was any band that seemed to have a, a thing, we would kind of try to foster it. So, you know, we, we connected with a band called um, Wicker Man because they were out of my school um, and they were doing like kind of a, a long haired metal thing, but at least we were friends with them. You know, at least they weren't maybe definitely, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know. what, uh, you know, when you get to Chicago, like, you know, it is that point where, because it does coalesce at a certain point and there is this sort of massive, you know, before it fractions off into little scenes, there is this sort of massive scene. What point did you see it begin to coalesce and like, were there, was it underdog records or like, what was the catalyst for kind of stuff coming together? Do you think? I think, uh, I think um, time, you know, I feel like every scene, um, even though I think scenes are connected because of what's going on in the, in the nation, you know, pre, pre-internet, everyone had like a different like undulations, you know, but what seemed to happen in most scenes in the, you know, sometime in the 80s, everyone kind of lost a little bit of something. And then by the 90s, people were building it back up, you know, in different ways. And I feel like time really allowed, um, you know, record labels to form uh, and new place, new venues and um, booking agents. It, it became this, this next wave in the early 90s became more of an industry in ways, which led to alternative, you know. So people that were like, there were booking agents that were specifically booking these bands. There were record labels that were, doing press and there were magazines that were covering these bands so when that infrastructure kind of got into place the bands that had been kind of struggling got some footing and the and new bands were able to form and i think that happened all across the country you know so um around the time that we hit chicago dc was finding itself that same year fugazi sent their demo was good they're like eight song tape was floating around and then um trench like i think fugazi's first show in chicago was at the mad medusas with trench mouth and so we were able to catch this next wave of things unknowing about what was happening with the record the other record labels and the other bands that were happening you know so we were just following our our trajectory that makes sense yeah it totally makes sense it's it's wild to me though to think that there's like conceivably a show you know like i, I heard actually the the bad religion show that you guys open um i, I think trench both opens for bad religion at a certain point right i can't remember okay people have brought it up on the show a couple times so if it didn't happen <laughs> tell, it's me, just, tell me about it <laughs> it's a shared delusion for a couple people but yeah. uh uh it feels like that show like a lot of people came together for but it's amazing to think about in that room you have the people that would be you know making inventing emo midwestern emo music a few years later and los crudos and the guy that would start victory records and like you know it's just so much amazing stuff is in that room uh, i just found out that the original becky from roseanne went to chicago shows back in the day yeah i i dated a girl who went to high school with her so <laughs> i didn't i did know that she was around yeah. <laughs> so it's amazing just how much energy there is, and it's once again, like like you said earlier, it's these young people that are kind of coming together, and it's just, it's kind of cool to think about what comes out of these little rooms with these people in it. 
Uh, I mean, it was a, it was a beautiful and exciting time, you know, um, people putting in the work and, and making things, you know, um, I think that the, the early nineties and the mid nineties were really amazing time as well. Even with that infrastructure, you know, like touch and go that was happening here and thrill jockey and it's in its strength days, you know, like, um, I, 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 it was super interesting. You know, lounge acts was a really amazing venue here in Chicago. Um, that everything came through, whether it was like Japanese, uh, Japanese music, um, or, um, you know, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, the dude from, um, uh, forget, forget. I was, I was about to do some wonderful, like <laughs> this or that or that. Yeah. And, then I got, and then I got stuck um, on his name. Uh, road, road runner, road runner. Oh, Jonathan Richmond. So Jonathan Richmond would play one night or, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the all female Japanese group would play the next night and then Sun Ra would play the night after that. Like that early nineties thing was just happening. You know, it was just really exciting. Jeff Tweedy was just on the show and his, his wife was the booker for there. Yeah. And she has every single tape. Sorry, sorry. Not Sue Garner. Sue Garner is in New York. Uh, gone suit. <laughs> she has every single tape of every single band that ever sent them a tape in their attic. Still, yeah. Like <laughs> it's got to be the Sue, most incredible collection. Sue is just super cool. She actually booked this place called the Cubby Bear, which was across the street from Wrigley Field. And so I remember Fred and I when we were super little, like you know, first arriving in Chicago, going there to drop off a tape for Sue. <laughs> so she probably has that in the attic still. She probably, she probably has it, yeah. So would that be a shovel tape that you would have been dropping off pre-trench? No, route? no, it would be. It would be a trench route. Tape. Okay, okay. So is that first seven inch? That's your own label that puts that out, right? Uh, a- we, ad infinitum. No, ad infinitum was. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. Um, it was. Oh, what is his name? Fred would remember his name, and I, I, I apologize. His name's not coming to me yet, but he. He was a guy that had a band. He wasn't in Bigfoot Sex Slave. He was in a different, he was in another band. But he was in one of those, like, I just haven't thought of his name in so long, but he was in one of those, like, early Chicago weird bands that we could, that we were like, I think we're related. You know, like, I think we're going to, like, we should, we should bond up. And he was like, I want to put out a seven inch. So Ad Infinitum put out the first seven inch. And then after Ad Infinitum didn't exist anymore and he was gone, we re- reissued that record with just no name. And I think it was just us. Oh, so that's the two. Because there's, there's a yellow sleeve version and there's a white sleeve version of it, right? So The white sleeve version is the second pressing that we just did. Oh, that's wild. I had no idea that that's the difference between the two. Okay. Yeah, okay. and the first, in the first seven inch, there is a photograph uh, or is uh, x-ray of a snake with a frog in its belly. And then the second pressing, I drew a frog with a snake in its belly. Oh, wow. They've actually never seen the second pressing in, in real life, only seen on the internet. So that's awesome. Look okay, at that explains that. Um, and then the second seven inch you do on Dead Bird Records. Um, yes, Adam Jacobs. 
which is which is also like a cool label like that you know talking back to the, some of the bands that came out of that red red meat would wind up on sub pop and edward redeeming's qualities would go on for years afterwards like it's only like a few bands that came out on that label but all of you kind of wind up having you know consistently long-lasting careers in this thing yeah i mean do you know do you know about adam jacobs at all no not at all so adam jacobs is uh, a chicago you know stalwart he's a legend and you know you know sometimes an irascible personality but he used to tape every show so he taped every show and it wasn't always easy to get a copy even as the band of the <laughs> show and he had a particular mindset that he was never going to do anything with the tapes but he taped metro fireside he was going to shows like every weekend so somewhere in his archive he's got tapes of insane amounts of shows um we've always been friends with him so like we put out a, a cd called more motion which was the best of trench mouth mm -hmm. kind of thing and the last song on that was the last song that we did from our last trench mouth show called onus so it's the last song on the set and it's the last song on the compilation um, of our of our last show. And so I was like, Adam, you're giving us a copy of the tape of this show. And so we got that and so we could put it on there. But he's a, he's an incredible resource that at some point his his archives will um, come to light and you're going to you're going to hear all types of insane shit. So was he recording it with video or is it audio recordings he's doing? There's audio recordings. Because there's another guy in Chicago, like there's so many great documentarians, I guess, going around, but there's someone in Chicago who always stood in the same position of the Fireside Bowl and their bootlegs I would get in Toronto back in the day of, of bands playing. But like, it's just amazing how much of that stuff is now on YouTube. And it's always, they, they must have had their spot. They would be like, okay, at Fireside, I'm going to go to this same spot every time. But it just, it's incredible that these people did this work because now it's here. I think that, I think that's Adam. Oh, well, maybe. So he must have been doing video at a certain point, too, I guess. Oh, OK. If it's video, then it's not. No, it's OK. Not he, he wasn't doing video. OK. There's some incredible stuff here, like on these videos, some some shows that uh, I'm sure people wish they could forget, but other shows that are I'm very glad that are here. How did the relationship with Skeen come about? Um, how did it? Oh, there was a, um, an amazing friend of ours who was from Rockford, who was roommates um, with Jeff. And we went up to Minneapolis to play a show and stayed with her. And, in, he, and she introduced us to Jeff. And I think Jeff just, you know, had only put out a couple things, maybe like Bob Evans. And I think he, he had put out maybe a Green Day thing. Yeah, he did the third Green Day 7-inch, Sweet Children EP. Yeah. And so he was interested in putting something out. And no one in Chicago was interested in putting out anything by us. So we were like, yes. <laughs> and so when we went to Minneapolis, we played with Jonestown and um, we, we knew we got to meet people from Babes in Toyland. And, um, and that was an, excite an exciting scene, but very different. Like there was a lot of drugs happening in Minneapolis and, you know, like people were going in and out of rehab. It was pretty intense. And we felt like real, you know, novices to that type of experience. Like we were like, that's, that's not, 
you know, what you do when you're making music, especially because, you know, I have my DC background, you know, mm -hmm. um, but uh, they, Minneapolis really accepted us and it was like a home away from home. It was more of a home than Chicago was in so many ways. So when we, we advanced to probably having a, a headlining show at First Avenue and we got like a kind of a, a bigger standing in Minneapolis than we had in Chicago, you know? Um, so we had lots of friends there. Jonestown led us to Dogface Hermans, who we went on tour with twice. And yeah, so our relationship with Jeff, Jeff was just like super supportive. And, and we brought Candy Machine to the label. And um, I really wanted him to put out this, put out stuff by this group called Jacks. And I really wanted to talk him into Scissor Girls as well, but I think I only got him to do Candy Machine. He, he had a great ear too, because like you know, in addition to yourselves and Green Day and Crimp Shrine and you know all this Connecticut hardcore stuff in the very very beginning of the label, he also does you know Craig from the Hold Steady's first record and right. in, in like Sticks and Stones like and Calvin Crime like just right. you know like a, it's it's not a huge roster, but all these bands are interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had a cameo or two on the Lifter Puller stuff, which is uh, Craig's stuff. Yeah. And, and then I think I think I was on, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm on a Calvin Prime 7-inch and helped produce one of their records. <laughs> so you really were part of the Minneapolis scene. That's true, yes. It feels like it was a more mature scene too, maybe because they went through the I don't know, I guess the music industry ringer first with with uh, replacements and everyone getting signed at a certain point and, and who's could do. But it feels like it would have been, I don't know, it just plays as an older scene to me looking at it in retrospect. Well, they did have an interesting thing. Like when we first got to Minneapolis, two, uh, Twin Tone was kind of still doing a thing. And so Jeff was looking for kind of a support system for his label. And I remember going to twin tone and having a conversation and never really panned out but there there was a a super interesting thing that i think amrep had set up there was like a space that was a warehouse where i think amrep worked out of but other small labels were allowed to have labels in that space so there was like a set of offices and each label had a little cubicle at that time and they could use that warehouse and use that facility to press their records. So A-Bomb, who put out some stuff for Doc Base Hermans and Skeen, all were out of this kind of support network, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. So the, the most powerful label at the time of underground stuff supported these other smaller labels. And probably like when they ordered records, it was going through the same thing and came to the same warehouse. It was really cool. So when I got there, I was super impressed. And I was like, this is a really like organized, uh, you know, music scene. So eventually you guys do start touring out. Um, what was the first tour that you guys went on? Jeez, that's a good question. Um, I bet Fred would remember, but I think our first, I mean, we used to go do jaunts, you know, mm -hmm. I do remember our first tour was Jonestown. It was us in Jonestown, and we went to the West Coast. And uh, we played in Berkeley and San Francisco. I think that was the end of the tour. And um, Gil we played Gilman, right? And um, 
Yeah, that was an amazing experience. I, I remember that really well because Jonestown was similar to us where it was like kind of black clothing and heavy steel-toed shoes and stuff like that. And I remember us like standing on the beach, like dressed in black with, you know, steel-toed, you know, Sears diehards standing in the sand being like, this is the, this is not where we where were from. <laughs> It's um, Cedric from at the drive-in talked about when you guys came to town, how impressive you guys looked. And it was just like, so something so different from any other band because you guys got out, you're all dressed in black. Like there was just like a presentation to the band that he kind of carried with him. Like he said, it was a huge influence on him. And yeah. Yeah. We always had like, when I first heard of at the drive-in, I mean, we played with at the drive-in down. And I think it was, pre-Omar, I think. And we, we have, I still have the seven inch from that. It has like a big boot on it, like stomping down on something. Is that the driving, right? So we played with them. And I think somehow, I feel like they had, well, don't quote me on it. I guess I'm just doing it on a punk podcast. But I feel like they had our, our look from our last tour. Like we, <laughs> okay. were, we were wearing white, button down shirts buttoned up to the top and cut across the cut across the bottom with our like you know chain wallets black pants and black shoes right and i feel yeah. like they were just like that right yeah. and we had moved on to like matching dickies i think and maybe dyed blonde hair or something you know and um we played with them and i thought they were really cool we got their seven inches and we moved on and then sometime later someone like shows me uh, at the driving record with a big boom box on the front cover. And I was like, and the last trench mouth record has the big boom box on the front cover. And I was like, Oh man, they just <laughs> bit our whole thing. Like I was, I was upset about it. So I wrote an email. Email was fairly new at the time, but it existed. So I wrote an email being like, Hey, I see you. This is our, this is our record cover. And then they wrote back, someone wrote back and was like, it's fully in homage and honor. We respect the group. We love the group, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, y'all are okay. And then they reached out and they were doing a split seven inch with Jawbox, a picture disc. And they asked me to do the artwork for it. And I had not done, I think I'd only done basically like trench mouth records. And I did the, 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 the split seven inch at the drive-in jaw box picture disc. And then they hit me up to do their record. And we've been like through that whole time, all the way through Mars Volta, they were just been great. Like mm. they, every time when Mars Volta like blew the fuck up, you know, like, I mean, at the drive-in clearly blew up, but Mars Volta, when they were in Chicago, they would always like big up the Eternals and just, always i we still check in every once in a while i think as a matter of fact this the picture i posted of me on the microphone at the body count show from in my eyes um cedric like was like oh my god this is amazing like on instagram so he's still watching yeah it's it's amazing the impact you guys had like i found this old fanzine uh the other day and i sent this to fred but it's an interview with you two and uh they're talking about the way you dressed and just like how, you know, making a point about it and just how, you know, like bands didn't do that back then. Like there was, you know, like obviously there's nation of Ulysses gets a lot of credit for dressing up, but like so few bands 
you know, put that effort into the show at that mm-hmm. point? Well, there are some lessons that we, that I learned, you know, and um, I feel like I was a little bit of the, like, the, I, I was a little bit of the, like, here's our trajectory. This is where our next album is going to be about, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I might suggest, you know, well, Wayne is pretty fashionable and I was pretty fashionable. So I think we had our, like, let's push this look, you know, let's do this. But I had, there was a couple of lessons that I had to learn. We, we, we played a lot of last shows. We lasted a lot longer than some bands, you know? So we played Circus Lupus's last show. We played, I think, Nation of Ulysses' like second to last show. We played Doc Grace Herman's last show, you know? So we, we often like, we're like, we're gonna keep waving this flag. You know, like Circus Lupus ends, we're gonna still like stay, keep strong and keep going, right? But we learned some lessons from from those bands. Like I remember the first show we played with Nation of Ulysses, they came to town with an unknown band called Bikini Kill, who was borrowing all their instruments and didn't know how to play. Yeah. And so we were playing in between them, of course, because it would make too much sense if they were using, the Bikini Kill was using (laughs) their instruments. It would make too much sense to have Nation of Ulysses play after them. So, but... Um, I think they probably had a seven inch out or something, you know, so we played second and then nation listens. So when we were at that, at that time, I had like long dreadlocks and it was just, and Wayne, I think had purple hair and Fred probably had colored hair. And so it was about as much air as I could get. And I have the dreadlocks flying and, you know, it was that early nineties type of vibe that was happening. You know, uh, if you had hair, it was going to be out there. Right. And we played and it was a good show. Like I was like, yeah, we did this. This is great. Fucking Nation of Ulysses shows up, like comes out in suits, slick back hair and the shoes are on fire. And I was just like, this is fucking incredible. Like I forgot about our set. Like I was like, I forgot that we just played. This is the only thing I'm paying attention to. And on that moment, I was like, you know what? This can't happen again. Like, we have to have our shit together. Like, we have to, like, we can't take presentation for granted, you know? So I give them credit also as an influence for that. Like, I was like, okay, I got to think about presentation. There's a a Swizz album called Hell Yeah, We Cheated. Mm -hmm. And it's got, like, Sean Brown on the cover like this. And he's making a face. It's this grainy black and white photograph. And it had so much character to it. And I was like, Swizzer, Swizz right now on this record cover are bad guys. And I was like, I like this. This is like, they're, 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 they're tough bad guys. And I was like, and it's a stance. And so I was like, you know, Trenchmouth, like, I felt like we needed to tweak from our like, we're jumping around doing crazy shit to be like, let's have a thing. You know, let's, let's find out what Trenchmouth is. And so Nation Ulysses had a, a hand in that. I give them credit. And we used to, we toured together so many times. And I think that we had like a really great relationship because we give each other shit, you know? Like, yeah. I'd be like this, you guys, you guys are fucking not 18 years old and you, you, you fucking sleep all the time, <laughs> you know? Like, because they're rhetoric. Because we, in the Midwest, people would ask us questions about Nation Ulysses constantly. Is it true they never sleep? Are they only 18? Did they get rid of their fingerprints? I'm like, no. <laughs> it's, it's all fake, you know? And um, so 
we had this like really great kind of spar. And, um, you know, when we first met, they were doing like, you know, they would come to the show in like jeans and a t-shirt and then they'd switch, you know, into these suits. And it was fantastic. And I still had dreadlocks and we'd still, we were still wearing shorts at the time. And they'd be like, look at you, what are you, what are you wearing shorts? What are you gonna do, play basketball or something? You know, I thought you were playing a show, you know? And I'd be like, oh, hey, wait a second, you know? And um, so by the end, Nature of Ulysses had switched to like blue jean jacket, like matching, they slowed down and they were wearing these button down, like James Kane was wearing this button down blue jean jacket thing. And I was like, <laughs> and they grew their hair long. And I was like, hey, Bobby Brady, what's going on? You know? <laughs> um, so Nation Ulysses was, was great in that regard for, for a, I really felt like it was, a, it was a, a, a friend band that really challenged us to think more. There were other bands like, you know, Jawbox, who we were very much in kinship with and and I think there's a song off of, I, I think there's a song off Grip where Jay and I actually had given each other an assignment, and we said I can't remember what the assignment was, but making money for freak machines was my answer to the assignment, and some, one of the songs off Grip was one of their answers. You know, Circus Lupus because they were in the Midwest, they were clearly misfits, and we were like this. We they, we both had bass players that were insane. You know, and so we were like, this is our this is our brethren, you know, um, and Circus Lupus, they're they're like carnival barker freak show type of um, thing, like really sat really well with us. And the fact that like Chris Thompson wouldn't like sync up his double track vocals, he, it didn't matter if they were off. That was something that I was like, a little bit of being fucked up is good. You know, like <laughs> having things be wrong is good. Thank you, Circus Lupus. And Doc, do you, are you familiar with Doc Free Sermons? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I okay, have so, I, I the first seven inch, but I've, I've heard, I had an LP at one point, but I don't have it anymore. Yeah. Well, they're early. They're all their early shit is a phenomenal. I Hell think they, yeah. actually, they stay great all the way through. But Doc Free Sermons taught me this lesson. Because the first time we played with Doc Race Hermans, we were in our like black Dickies work outfit. We were in full like kind of gang of four, angular, serious thing. And when we played with Doc Race Hermans, like Colin and Andy were like swinging their guitars. Colin was a giant sized bass player, dude. And he was like hit, hit the wall. He like bang up against the wall and swinging his stuff back and forth. He was the only guy I knew that had seen like the British, he was older. So he'd seen the like British punk um, late seventies stuff. Yeah. So I was pretty amazing. And Andy was playing a treated guitar with like a, 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 um, a, a can lid stuck into his guitar uh, neck and um, Marion played trumpet. And so that first tour where we went on with them, Every single gig, they blew us off the stage. It was like we were doing our angular, punk, serious thing. And when they played, it was like the sun coming over the mountain. And I didn't know that music could do that. Like, I was just like, holy cow, this is like, like I'm being illuminated by this music. And so 
we also needed to learn that it wasn't all about serious and angular. You had to like reach out, you know, you had to like extend something. Mm. So sorry, I sorry I went on that long journey. No, no, that's awesome too, because I think I think Circus Lupus is like an underappreciated band. Like I went today and listened to that split you guys do, and they do the the pack cover on it, which makes complete sense, the UK punk connection, because yeah. uh but there is something you're right, like there's something imperfect about that band which makes it, you know, really fun to listen to. And that I guess that's the that's the delicate balance in punk, right? You want it to be tight and you want to have that 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 presentation down, but at the same time you gotta have that it's gonna fall apart at any second feel to it yeah. on some level. Exactly. Yeah. And um, not not all of us could get that in the the it's gonna fall apart level in the front. Like Nation Religious Ulysses entered with this this is probably going to fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> um, did, being from DC, did you have that, like, you know, comes up time and time again, but that little, you know, DC punk on your shoulder when you signed to East West records being like, this might not be a good idea or cause you ultimately wind up doing record on skiing afterwards. Like, yeah. What, what was that experience like for you kind of coming out of that DC scene? Well, that was interesting because that was the moment, like, everyone was signing to major labels, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I remember, I think Jawbox signed to a major label before Jawbreaker. So people were like giving Jawbox grief for signing to a major label. And then like quietly, like six months later, I think Jawbreaker like signed. <laughs> Just tried um, to sneak it in there. Yeah, um, but we didn't actually have to sign anything because it was a scheme deal. Like oh. Skeen got a deal with East West. So my, our agreement was with Skeen and Skeen had to deal with East West, right? That didn't. That doesn't mean that we didn't have to like have conversations with some of the 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 people that were like booking our shows, you know. Mm -hmm. And I I squarely kind of came to grips with this idea that like I was a huge fan of Public Enemy, you know. And I was like, there's nothing more confrontational um, to the system than Public Enemy at this moment. And Public mm -hmm. Enemy gets to use that machine to put out its message, right? I was a yeah. huge, huge Clash fan. And so to me, there are, there are other ways to do things other than the Discord way. And I, was, I didn't have a huge problem with it. It didn't mean I didn't think about it. I think it was worth discussion. I mean, I think Jay called me before they signed, when they got their offer. And we had a long conversation about whether they should sign to a major label. So it was, it was, it was, I think that that goes along with not only Discord, but there were ethoses, you know, uh, around punk, like Steve Albini had an ethos, you know, mm -hmm. like we were influenced by these things. I used to work at Itful Recording Studio that recorded a ton of shit, including the Liz Fair record. Like I was around when that was being done and uh, I worked at that studio. I mean, I wasn't, I was around literally when like Brook Assault played. I wasn't in the studio when Liz Fair was doing it because they didn't need me. But yeah. um, uh, because the engineers were in the band. But uh, I think that Brad Wood, who was that engineer and owned, this, owned part of the studio, um, listened, like thought about Steve Albini when, you know, Kiss calls to record. You know, like I think he turned down a Kiss record because he was like this is this is not what we're interested in doing and i was like you, if kiss calls you do the kiss record <laughs> just for the stories exactly 
do the kiss record you know? yeah well it's it's funny because when daryl jennifer was on he was talking about the difference in philosophies between the bad brains approach and and minor threats approach where he's like the bad brains we were looking at this as being a global thing like we didn't want to think about this being local and he's like we had to sacrifice you know our, our our catalog a lot of stuff to try and get our records out there to people but for us that was the bigger mission and it's interesting to kind of like parse that because it's very much like the sort of like thinking locally philosophy versus this thinking globally philosophy of trying to get your music out to as many people regardless of what how much control you wind up with you know you want people to hear what you're doing yeah i mean i think it was interesting because you know be, you know being from dc and having that proximity to it, right? I was also not in DC and the thing that I made was not a product of DC. You know, mm. like I left and then created a thing and then my connections formed this, this relationship, but we were not a DC band. Yeah. Um, so there was a previous trench mouth, previous to us in, strangely, in DC in like 1980 that I didn't know about. John Stabb told me there was a band called Trench Mouth. And I was like, I started seeing shows in 1983 and if I've never heard of them, no one's heard of them. And then like two years later, the band in DC book comes out with this band trench mouth. But um, I say um, the interesting thing is, is that the D Ian, for example, who would, I would say would be the, the spearhead of the, the scene. Yeah. Ian, you know, and he, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, Ian's ideas never were meant to be for other people. Mm -hmm. This is what he wanted to do locally. And he would have said, like, like they basically put out DC bands. Uh, in the heyday, it was mostly in his friend circle, right? Mm -hmm. And they did a wonderful thing. And some people are like, well, you know, they, the, you know, the DNA, there wasn't enough people coming in and they, uh, or I'm bummed or, why, why can't you drink or smoke or whatever? And Ian, probably his answer would be, you can do wherever you want. Yeah, build your I'm own not, thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not judging you. Make your own. I made a thing for the, the people around me and it worked out great. Don't complain that I'm not, like that it's not for you because this was made for this people. So um, one thing that I learned and was kind of um, confronted with is I did have to think about it, but I was also, we're doing our own thing. This isn't like, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how it, it is this, it's very much like a religion in the sense that these are, you know, these people come up with these things for themselves and then people misinterpret it or take it different places or look at straight edge, look at all the different places that one I'm sure yeah. is not where yeah. Ian imagined it going. And it's just, it, it's interesting how, and especially because people are writing these things when they're like 20 years old and, and, mm -hmm. and adults. Yeah. Or, or even younger, you know, and people are still carrying it with them years later as adults, like these philosophies with them, they're, they're, they, people construct their lives around them. Yeah, it's super interesting. But um, one time we were playing a show, I, 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 yeah, we were playing a show with Fugazi and Fugazi didn't sell merch mm. because they were, they were the merch. Discord was the merch. Like, why would you carry the records around if you had your own record label? But <laughs> Um, and so I was like, oh, hey, I'm, hey, you know, we have merch. I hope this is cool. And he was like, sell the merch. Get it out. You know, like, he wasn't like, 
I, and that kind of clicked to me that I was like, oh, he's not telling me not to sell merch just because they don't sell merch, you know? Like he's got a totally different scenario. So he was like, go for it. I hope you sell a lot of merch because we're not selling it, you know? So that was a, that was like the like baseline example of like, I'm not telling you what to do, you know? Yeah. It's interesting too, because like for another band to do, like to, for there to be another Fugazi, it's almost like this aspirational thing that no other band could reach because the the precursors that were there like having your own label like being in an established band beforehand like all these things perfectly aligned to be able to produce this band that was able to be so chase in the way they approach this this music industry but the rest of us have to sell out on some level just to do it Mm -hmm. i find i certainly personally yeah Yeah, I, i you know i feel like uh i feel like sell out is a is a you know, a derogatory term uh, in, in, in the way where we come from. Mm-hmm. So I think that people have to figure out the ways to, to make it work, you know, mm-hmm. and you can do a lot of things in a lot of different ways. There's not only one way to do things. It's not, I mean, all the influences that, that came, that created Fugazi, a lot of them were on major labels, you know, so you know, there's a lot of ways that you can do it. That's the great thing about life. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's the best thing about this thing too, is because we can all like make our own version of it or we all were able to make our own version of it. And, yeah. And, and, I, and, and a lot of the stuff that I learned from punk really applies to my life today. You know, um, I think that as a, as a young kid in the suburbs of DC, you know, I, you know, I, I did my, like, get on my bike and ride to 7-Eleven. I was on the swim team, blah, blah, blah. But the punk scene was something that allowed me to think about a group of people doing something together. And I was like, oh, this is, this is like a group of people making something. It's like friends and friends that you don't know, you know? Like, mm. I remember one time in the, in the early 90s, I got a phone call. I think it's, I think I got a phone call from Unwound and I had not met Unwound. They were just like part of the thing and their show had gotten canceled and they thought they might be able to get another show happening, but could they come to my house? And I said, yeah. And I gave them directions to my house and they came and we hung out for a couple hours until their show came through. And then they got a show and I went and saw their show and they stayed somewhere else and they moved on. And I was like, this is a beautiful thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that really, you know, as a young person kind of allowed me to think about a community. And as I got older and became a, a, a grown person out in the world, you know, it was, it was able, I was able to think about community in many ways, which, which started me on a journey of operating in community and was my idea about community. So I started doing work that was aligned with specifically doing work to make money that was aligned with my kind of political beliefs. So I started working with organizations that were that were working around incarceration and working with like the Bill of Rights for domestic workers. And I started doing my graphic design for people that were making documentaries about 
the violence in Chicago, you know, and I just wanted to be connected to that. And then eventually I got, I got um, offered a, to collaborate working in a maximum security prison. Um, and I started teaching there and started to think about, you know, how this country deals with harm and, and what are, what, what, what racism and, you know, our power structures and capitalism has created behind the walls of prisons. And I was set up for that by Jello Biafra and MDC, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I was able to access it as an adult, as an adult black man who goes into a prison and sees that looks like 90% black men in prison. And then start to make work around that, you know, and mm -hmm. then start to think about like, how do I make my work accessible to, to, to people that aren't in music scenes, you know? And so hence my, like kind of my newer group, Black Monument Ensemble is kind of about getting it out there, getting music to communities that need these monuments of art and music and dance. You know, there you go. No, and, it, and it's, it's doing this sort of like, this sort of theoretical stuff in punk rock, like so much about punk rock is just talking about this shit, like being like, can you believe this is happening? Can you believe this is happening? But then the next step is like, well, well, what do we do? Like, yeah. how do we do something about it? So yeah. there doesn't have to be another song written about it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I said that when the, you know, when, you know, in our previous election, when this mm -hmm. happened, <laughs> um, I don't really want to talk about him that much, but, in that previous election and during this pandemic, it's like, you know, this is the, the playtime is over, you know? So what, what, what do we do now? Like, what is it, you know? Um, what are the lessons that we, that we listen to in song? What are we gonna do? So in so many ways that like punk upbringing kind of set us, you know, set us up for addressing these times, you know? So the, the rehearsal's over, now it's time to do the stuff. And the stuff doesn't necessarily look like a seven inch, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it, it looks like something else. Um, so uh, that this punk rock upbringing, my, my life um, listening to, you know, Damaged or SOA before that, or, you know, uh, Channel Three or the Ruts or the U Man or you know any number Antidote from New York any number of incredible bands like all of that stuff is still alive in here but it's being activated in a different way and I I, I feel lucky that I was able to you know have this experience of like seeing Bad Brains as a little kid, you know, um, to have my mind opened and, and have questions, like have me asking questions by other young people, people that were like, you know, probably at the most five years older than I am, you know, mm -hmm. and being like, I never thought of that, you know? So going to that art class was probably the best idea that that art teacher could have had for me, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> So I can meet Peter Kortner and uh, uh, Joe Lally as an eighth grader and have them start making tapes really helped me out. Well, Damon, this has been unbelievable 
to get to do this with you. And anytime you want to come back on here, please know the door is always open. But before I let you go, can I ask you one more question? Yeah. I have to ask you about this Countdown to Chaos 7-inch, nice. which is raging. This thing, I had no idea about this thing's existence till today. And uh, what's the story on it? Because it's, it's all of Trenchmouth, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Countdown to Chaos is the shit, you know? Like, yes. And and I got to tell you, there is a there is a, uh, a secret Countdown to Chaos record that is, is literally a secret. Like, it's the, it's the thing that's still waiting to be on Earth. We, the story with Countdown the Chaos is, I think I came up with the concept. It was Halloween. We were doing a show at the Czar Bar. And I can't remember, do, we were playing with this group called Deuces and maybe with Scissor Girls. Um, and I said, let's, let's do our Halloween costume as a different band. And so we came up with the name Countdown the Chaos and we wrote 13 songs. And 13 songs of different punk genres. <laughs> and so we had like a song that sounded like the Stranglers. We had the song that sounded like Rights of Spring. We had a song that sounded like The Damned or, or, or whomever, you know, yeah, like yeah. we went across the whole thing, right? The UK subs or whatever, you know? And we wrote these songs and memorized them. We went to the show as Trenchmouth, did sound check. During the second band, because we were headlining, we left. We went back to my house where we had costumes <laughs> set up. We changed into our costumes and arrived as Countdown to Chaos as the last band was done. And um, we played this like punk set that people went crazy. And this was this was at a time when um, like stage diving and slam dancing was not cool anymore. Post Fugazi like, rules. Yes. People weren't doing it anymore. Yeah. And so for some unknown reason, the amazing Chris Ball, I think, was in town and at the show. And everyone that was our age just went crazy. People were like stage diving on this low stage and slant, like and thrashing, you know, and we had an incredible night. And then we recorded all those songs on four track. And because of a mistake, my vocals were recorded from the wrong playback head. So my voice, my voice was off a oh, little bit yeah, on, yeah. on every song. So the tape exists. No one has just, and the original four track recorder exists. The machine exists. So no one has put the original tracks onto a computer and then just all you have to do is line up the vocal. Now you just have to shift it all. And in your set. And so at some day, we're going to take the time to do that. And the Countdown of Chaos unheard album will exist. That's so the seven, it's different stuff than the, on the seven inch. They're the, they're the same. They're, those three songs from the seven inch are on that thing. But it's a different yeah, it's oh. a four. So I wanted to re record because at the time it was a lost session because we're like, the vocals are in the wrong spot. We're, ne we're never going to be able to use it. Um, so I reached out to, um, I was at Info at the time. So I reached out to um, uh, John McIntyre from Tortoise. And, and that's said, John Bondage, right? Yes. So we told, <laughs> I told him about this idea and he was like, yeah, I'll record it. And then came up, we all came up with fake names. Um, we had Jeff 
Jeff Skeen Spiegel said, I'll press it, pressed it on clear vinyl. I made the artwork for it. And we just sold it when we were on the road and didn't tell, we were like, this is another great band from Chicago. And at some point, because vinyl was waning at that time, everyone was moving to CDs. We said, hey, if you buy Trenchmouth versus the Light of the Sun, you get this free countdown to Chaos 7-inch with it. So um, we never actually publicly told anyone what that was. But I think after that, Trenchmouth would occasionally do Graveyard Train, but we would announce it as a cover of an amazing band called Countdown to Chaos. That's so awesome. Yeah. Um, versus the Light of the Sun has never been repressed, right? Like it's just that one-time pressing on vinyl. Yeah, I think all of the records were only pressed once. Yeah, it's yeah. it's wild that none of you, like, there's got to be a reissue campaign at some point. You know what? I agree with you. Uh, a couple every every so often, I will go back and play on trench mouth, and I will be so proud of. I, I'd say I'm 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 not amazed with the first record, but the 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 last three records. I'm super proud of them. Mm. And one thing that I'm always, I always feel good about is I feel good about the work that Trenchmouth did. And, you know, Fred, Wayne, and I are in regular contact. And it's so great that all of us are super proud and still rep Trenchmouth fully. And I told Fred, like, I was like, if you get famous, you got to do some good shit because we were in Trenchmouth. You can't be doing, you can't do weak shit because we're trench people. So he's still like, I still think of the work I do as still fully representing trench mouth. Like I'm, I'm I got to do good because, you know, we were in trench mouth. And I tell people, I know a handful of people that have trench mouth tattoos. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? You can always be proud. Trench mouth is never going to reunite. And we will always like do our best post trench mouth to do what we can you know we'll try to do our best so we're not gonna we're not gonna get back together and be bad and uh we're always gonna try to work hard that's that's the trench mouth promise it's amazing how much pressure it puts on you when someone decides to get your band tattooed on them yeah. <laughs> like i gotta live up to this this person's got this for life <laughs> yeah i mean i have a good friend uh ralph from philly he was in a band called franklin um oh, great band yeah yeah yeah, he's a good. He lives here in Chicago. He's one of my best friends. I talk to him like every day. Um, on Trenchmouth versus the Light of the Sun, there's that illustration of the four astronauts. Yeah, he's got that on his back. And so I was like, "Hey, we're not getting back together." Like, um, there's a there's a part of me back in the day when people were getting back together where I was like, "This, I think I could do it." You know, like I I think I still got my chops. You know, like. I'm still in, I'm still in, I'm still in fighting shape. You know, I, I can make it happen. Wayne was like, shit, I have to learn all these baselines. So there was a time period where the offers were happening, right? Mm-hmm. Like people want Trent Mouth to play. And I would, I would call up Fred and I said, Fred, you know, if we decide to do this, you'd have to come back to Chicago for like three weeks. Like we'd have to like, no half stepping. Like we'd have to like learn the songs and do it. And he's like, I don't think I can. Like, I was like, no problem. Cool. And then I got really super comfortable with the idea of, I think it's all right. Like, Trenchmouth never plays again. I think it's good. We're going to be the band that never plays again. And if you saw us, you saw us. If you didn't, 
your imagination will do the jo- do the job. It's going to be great. Yeah, no, it's perfect that way. Yeah. Um, this has been perfect, Damon. And anytime you want to come on here and nerd out about this stuff, like we didn't even talk about the antidote seven, and you dropped that in casually. We didn't even get to that. So yeah. please know the door is always open. I appreciate it. I, I really had a good time and, and it came at a perfect time. I, I, I appreciate it. Like I just was looking through that book in my eyes and having lots of conversations this morning. So this was like the perfect cat to my day. Thank you, Damon, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, he will be back for a part two in the future. We already, we already had some ideas coming up, so this might happen sooner rather than later, hopefully. Uh, and, and that is it. Once again, check out Black Monument Ensemble's record uh, now. now. Now you can check it out. Damon Locke's Black Monument Ensemble. Check it out now. Um, it's called Now, too. All right. Then coming up later on this weekend, uh, or this week, depending on when you're listening to it, the next episode is going to be a audio version, once again, of the Danko Jones uh, pod, video podcast that we're doing. I guess YouTube show. I don't know what you call it. YouTube show, I guess. I don't. I think that's, yeah, it's it's a YouTube show, but the audio version of that will be up on this feed, uh, next. And then, uh, it's called roll the dice with D and D by the way. And we talk about records. So if you're, if you're into record chat, weird records, I talk generally about punk records because I really don't have a very big wheelhouse, but Danko's stuff is all over the map. He's got some awesome stuff. So check out that show. If you enjoy records, you can listen to the audio version here and then over on YouTube, roll the dice with D and D and it'll come up. It's not about Dungeons and Dragons. A lot of people think it's about Dungeons and Dragons. Could be about Dungeons and Dragons. We both play. We both still have our books. We both still have our dice. Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll pivot. We get bored of talking about records. Maybe it'll pivot to a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Uh, but then also coming up later on this week, uh, an incredible, oh, there's, there's tons. There's going to be a bunch of episodes this week. Well, uh, two, three. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. It's kicking it off though this weekend with the, uh, Danko Jones, Damian Abraham, roll the dice with D and D audio version. And, uh, and that is that. Okay. Remember as always black lives matter. The lives of indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hating violence towards people of different faiths and stop fascism. Just because this, this stuff's not political. This is just basic human rights stuff. If, if someone is, being oppressed, no one's free. That's a cliched thing. It's been, (laughs) it's been said in so many songs, but it's true. It's very true. And it still rings true. So get involved, stand up. If there's organizations doing work that, you know, you think is, is good and helping affect positive changes world, do something, you know, look at, look at what Damon did. He's like in prisons, actively trying to change the world as, as sort of an extension of this, what he saw in this music or what he got from this music. And it's, uh, it's, it's very inspiring. So hopefully you're inspired too, you know, to do something, uh, try meditating for yourself because right now the world can seem very overwhelming. And I speak from experience. I didn't think this shit would work. And then I tried meditating and I tried breathing and my gosh, it is, it, it does have positive effects on your, your mental health and, and yourself. And I feel it when I don't do it. So maybe try it. You know, it doesn't hurt anyone to try it. There's, there's so many ways. If you're listening to this podcast, I guarantee you can have access to someone doing some sort of meditation thing. You can try it a few times because the first time didn't really stick with me. 
first few times it didn't stick with me, but eventually it did. Uh, start your own scene. Go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can start a band. Anyone can start a fanzine. Anyone can start a podcast. Anyone can do any of this shit. Do it. Why not? You may just draw a picture for yourself. Be, be creative because that can also help your mental health. Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need that shit anymore. And it's just more stuff for them to throw away or embalm. I really don't know what they do with all those organs. I think, I think, <laughs> I think they keep them. But you're not going to need them. So sign that organ donor card. And, you know, you're not, you don't have to worry about it, though. You don't have to worry about what they're going to do with your organs that way. Because um, you know. You know. And that is that. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay safe out there. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to hopefully seeing some of you at shows. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that's it. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.